Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bover, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. This week in episode six, I finally get a chance to talk to another educator who is using primary sources, and I love the conversation that we had. I talk with middle school, high school teacher Donna Catapano, who I met back in 2016 at the Library of Congress Summer Teacher Institute. We get a chance to talk about perspectives in primary sources, the time that it takes to build a great primary source lesson, I love that she gets to share her view as a high school and middle school teacher of what this looks like, and I get a chance to compare that to my elementary view. And we specifically look at the placement of primary sources within a lesson and the importance of collaboration around a lesson she does around FDR. I want to add one additional piece of information. Donna and I, at the end, talk about that Summer Teacher Institute, and I didn't get a chance during our interview to name the people who I worked with that summer when I helped put on those Summer Teacher Institutes at the Library of Congress. So I want to give a shout out to Michael Appledorf, Ann Savage, and all the people behind the scenes who met with us, helped us structure those things, and supported us throughout those weeks, as well as Trey Smith, the other teacher in residence that year who did the Summer Teacher Institute on weeks that I was not there. So shout outs to all of them. Uh, They are amazing people and friends of mine to this day, and I can't say enough great things about them personally and professionally. So I wanted to call Uh, Mike and Ann out by name. All right, enjoy this interview between me and Donna Catapano. We are here with Donna Catapano, and Donna is a secondary history teacher in Queens, New York. We met a few years ago, Mm -hmm. and you were kind enough, Donna, to reach out and say, hey, I would love to chat with you about primary sources and some of the things that we are doing in our classrooms with our students and i was more than excited to do that (laughs) thank you first off just off the bat for visiting with us and also thank you for sharing some of this work ahead of time so i could really wrap my head around what was happening in your classroom it sounds incredible i wish that my daughters who are high school students one of them still is was doing this kind of work um (laughs) it's 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 deep and it's rich and and so I want to go ahead and just dive right in. One thing that really stood out to me was tied into a misconception that I think a lot of educators sometimes have around primary sources, especially ones who maybe don't work with them a lot. And that is that there's kind of this inherent truth around the primary source. And what I would say is that really what makes a historical document or an artifact interesting is the perspective that it brings and what students can do with that perspective as they're looking at history. And so I know this really stood out to me as one thing that you work with your students on. So would you share a little bit about the approach that you take with this? Absolutely. Uh, First, I wanna thank you for having me on. Uh, It's an honor to be on with you and I'm so glad to be uh, talking with you again. 
but yeah, I, when I first saw it, when I first started thinking about that, I um, really started to know and remember how students always ask me, well, are primary sources, um, they're better to look at because they're truer or they're more accurate. And my goal for students is to look at different perspectives of things. Yes, primary sources might show a more of a, uh, the experience that that person went through, but is that primary source in itself bias? Because people always talk about, oh, history textbooks are biased, but primary sources can absolutely be just as biased. So it's up to the teacher, and this is what I make sure I do, and I'm getting better and better as I go, to make sure I show them both sides. And that comes with a lot of things. That comes with knowing the content, uh, knowing that there is another side, knowing that there is bias in certain sources that they are looking at, and just kind of comparing them and corroborating documents and comparing and contrasting what different perspectives and more so experiences are, especially everything going on today. I try to get students to really question primary sources that they look at, including media sources, pictures, um, headlines that they see online, to not believe it right away necessarily, but to question it. What is the source? Where is this coming from? And posing the right provocative questions for students in order to for them to acknowledge no matter what age yeah maybe this isn't true uh, so quick let me dive more deeper into this and see where this information is coming from before i make a decision regardless if it's a primary source i think there's a few things you're saying that i'm really just connecting with so deeply and one of them is this idea that we don't necessarily always just put one source in front of students, right? We've got to bring these multiple sources in so we can look at those perspectives. Definitely. Uh, What's some of that searching look like for you? Because obviously you're probably doing a lot of that legwork ahead of time to get those materials ready for students. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you want your students to effectively analyze primary sources, the legwork is absolutely on the teacher and your planning time is heavy. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be very, very upfront and say um, you definitely have to do the planning, the research, and you also need to make sure you're searching the right websites, the right um, databases and things like that for these sources. So I definitely, like I said, um, what, how it has to do with knowing the content. I think of a certain historical topic, say the Civil War, and that's probably one of the most, the biggest ones. And when you see uh, the North, a primary source from the North or a primary source from the South. Okay, so now I know as the teacher that I have to dive in and find a source, if there's a checklist, find a source that I think that is age appropriate for my students that they would understand. Um, a source that will also help them understand the whole topic and then make sure that both sources um, are related in a way, how one might contradict the other. And I will say that my research goes very extensively. I use so many different highly recommended websites such as the Library of Congress. I definitely use that. I have used Chronicling America, which I find really interesting and it's just full and full of so many different things that are incredibly useful for teachers if you're looking to teach like this with primary sources um, and other government websites that you can 
find this kind of information for. I think that one thing I hear you saying too is another thing that I was sharing with a group of educators when I was talking with them recently. First of all, I was also kind of putting in a plug for leaning on your school librarian, possibly as someone who could do some of that legwork if that if you have that kind of relationship with that individual. Uh, but also this idea that you kind of have to know what the hot spots are. What are the those key databases? And most importantly, what kind of things do they hold? So if I am looking for civil war, where are the two or three places I'm going to really, be benefited from actually spending my time there versus, okay, I've got these dozen places I'm going to go and I might be spinning my wheels a little bit because I don't necessarily know what is there, what are their, um, what's the sweet spot in their holdings. It is extremely easy to get lost in links, I like to call it. And these links can, they're long, they're complex, and you don't know where they go to and what they do. So it is one thing to save links to different databases, but it's almost like creating a whole new curriculum in itself for when you want to find these digital primary sources, because if you create a new map and you create sort of like a curriculum map of what you're going to use for which topic, it makes, it's made my life a lot easier. Um, and then of course I have, I have, a, my school librarian is an angel <laughs> and she's helped me and she's helped so many of my colleagues with so many different things as far as resources or websites that teachers can use for certain topics. But that is something that I definitely suggest is to compile a list of websites or what, however you look or database, however you get your primary source information that you know you're going to use for certain units. Because if that is lacking, it definitely makes it harder for you. Absolutely. I want to circle back to another piece that you referenced as you were talking about your students actually using these sources. And really around this idea of, of a framework that students use to view and make meaning from something like a historical document using some type of, you specifically mentioned, an analysis method. And that seems so important to me at an elementary level with my elementary students, whether I'm kindergarten, fifth grade, doesn't matter. We use, and we have a handful of them, but we use certain analysis methods and they know if we're going to look at a historical document, we're going to be using one of these methods. For you with high school students, is that a priority for you? Is that something that your students need to use to actually make sense or, or does it benefit them to use that type of uh, some type of analysis method to make meaning from the documents that you're sharing with them? I absolutely think so because I feel the use of primary sources can be very useful at the beginning of a unit, mid unit, or at the end of a unit for some sort of summative assessment. So I definitely believe some sort of analysis method to kind of guide, I don't want to guide their thinking, but I want to um, assist them in maybe what they're looking for in this primary source. So there are so many different analysis methods like soap's tone, um, definitely like what the tone of the primary source is or who the audience might be, or do you think this is biased? Of course, those questions might depend on where you are in your unit. 
Um, but there, I would definitely encourage using different analysis methods uh, depending on where you are in your unit. For example, if you're at the end of your unit, you may not need a heavily scaffolded analysis method. You might just throw two pictures up on the board, two primary sources up on the board, and pretty much tell the students, okay, let's text graffiti this primary source. Who's the audience? What's the context? And um, what is this? What are these two primary sources saying? But if you showed those same two primary sources at the beginning, I feel definitely uh, even at the high school level, middle school level, it's, it's still much more scaffolded. And then I remove scaffolds as the unit goes on. Um, for my secondary students, I feel like they very much appreciate um, how that goes. And what I do find helps them is when they have a chance to discuss the primary source with their classmates. And it's not just staying um, individually, they're talking about it as a group, they're getting different opinions because I feel that's, that's what I want them to know history is. It's different opinions, it's debates, and that's what I want them to do with evidence educationally. I want them to be able to disagree with their classmate, but then defend it with evidence uh, and, and establish that culture. But of course, that's up to uh, the classroom as well. I, I love what, even when you're talking about this idea of just the text graffiti, which I have never heard that term before, but I love that term because I feel like as I'm playing the documenter for my students, when we're kind of doing a collaborative analysis, that's what I'm doing is I'm writing all over the, the image, if it's an image or marking up the text or what have you. Um, but I even feel like when even your example of that, really students are sourcing and contextualizing, right? I mean, those are the two big things that, that you really mentioned them doing in that particular example. And so they're using those analysis methods, but I hear what you're saying. They're using them more independently and not, and taking away some of that scaffolding, some of that structure. And I guess I would say too, my, my, even my upper elementary students who maybe have been doing this multiple times a year for several years, there's places where I feel like I can take away some of that scaffolding and be a little bit looser. It's, it's neat to hear what that might look like at a high school level. That's always my hope is that they walk into the middle school and the high school and they're like, I've got this down. I know how to do this. <laughs> no, uh, I get and it. at least some of those experiences, hopefully, I think, pay forward to their history teachers and their other teachers that they have that are using these type of, uh, of documents. There's something else that you said that I think is so important too, though, and that's this idea of collaboration during looking at historical documents. So important. And, and I'm so glad that you said at the high school level, you want those kids discussing those uh, artifacts, those documents, those primary sources. I find that when my students do that, they end up really assisting each other in their own viewing of the document. Definitely. Um, I've had that experience as well with my high schoolers and with my middle schoolers. Um, first thing that came to my mind as we're talking about this is um, the Boston Massacre by Paul Revere. Uh, that really famous painting or drawing that we uh, typically show kids when we're talking about the American Revolution. Um, we did a, a primary source analysis of that. And this, will, this was about two years ago, and it will always stick in my head how much they learned from each other, simply because I said, okay, you guys are working in groups of four. When we did, you know, the whole class share out, they were using accountable talk. Oh, so-and-so said this, and I hadn't really looked at it that way. I, uh, he or she noticed this in the background, and I had them use, like, little sticky notes to kind of um, put their, to mark their evidence kind of thing, and then kind of writing on the document that way. 
Um, and it was really cool because I had bought these, uh, a bag of those miniature uh, magnifying glasses so they could really get into it. Um, but the things that they were coming up, up with, because I just simply came up with a structured way of having them collaborate, let me emphasize structure, is mind-blowing. They blew my mind. I think that I've had that experience too. And I think that's why I love working with primary sources. It's not always the source. What really keeps me coming back is the student learning that comes from it every single time. And I'd love to take credit for it, but in all honesty, it's those structures that you're talking about, putting those right structures in place at the right time, uh, I think end up being, giving us some really amazing learning that I just love as a, as an educator seeing over and over again. Absolutely. Um, I totally agree. I, I, I want to jump to something that you shared with me before our interview, and that is that you had an article published somewhat recently, I believe, in History Is Now magazine. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. On that. I, I got a chance to read it. It was really thought-provoking and it focused in on FDR. And my takeaway was, and I'm, I'm, I will fully admit, I'm not like an FDR expert by any stretch, so this is not my area of expertise, but my takeaway in a more general sense was that many of us have this either idealized or, or maybe villainous, depending on how your political viewpoint is, version of him and kind of what he accomplished over the years, but he was a much more complex person than that. And, and of course, this is true often of people in history. And I'm wondering, how do primary sources for you play a part in students understanding that more nuanced version of FDR, that more complex version of FDR? Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for bringing up the article because I've actually had this topic in mind for about a year and a half. It, it came up when I um, attended a teacher seminar last summer up at the uh, FDR pres presidential library and so many questions came about when we were receiving lecture um, from the staff up there in Hyde Park, New York. Um, and what came to mind was it would be so interesting to show students both sides of FDR because I'm a huge FDR fan, but I don't want as a history teacher and personally, I don't want to glorify him in any way. Uh, I want to keep that same language and thoughts that I mentioned before, I want students to question. All right, well, this guy did a lot, but what's missing? Like, what are we not knowing here? And my goal is to get students to think like that. So I worked on the article and a lot of my information came from primary sources because the three things that I mentioned are, um, was he as liberal with race relations in the 1930s and 40s as he was um, economically. So I did some digging and I actually found on um, several government websites, the FDR library being one of them, uh, the, a lot of his fireside chats gave out a lot of information. Uh, they, a lot of the websites actually have the transcripts of his fireside chats, which I found amazing because FDR. <laughs> and I also looked at and studied the um, Executive Order 9066, the Japanese internment bill. And I also studied the who got the New Deal jobs 
who got first crack at New Deal jobs. And because of the studying of those primary sources, I'm noticing, of course, as a historian, that maybe he isn't as liberal as people talk about. And I wanted to get that known in my uh, in my article, and I wanted I want students to come to that conclusion as well. So what I do is I learn it for myself first. I write it down, and that helps me form controversial questions for students. Now I will pose that question to them and see what they think based on primary source evidence. So I found it was extremely important to study those sources coming right out of FDR's mouth and how he does feel about certain issues, about his actions and inactions during the 1930s and 40s. And it just, I feel like it can help teach FDR in a lot of ways and not only him like you said there's so many there's different sides to so many historical figures and it can maybe get educators to think well if this happened with FDR there's so many more other historical figures this can be the case for and we can get them to thinking and prop and possibly exposing students to different sides of the person and just showing that they really were per that's exactly what they were was a human being that maybe does not deserve glorification and having students think about that. I, I also think that sometimes when I, I look at historical figures who have been put up on a pedestal for reasons that are completely understandable, I think that one thing that comes to mind though is that for my students, I always worry about, are they gonna think that this person is just boring? And so I think this idea of bringing in other elements of that individual, uh, other portions of their lives, other things that they uh, stood for, other things that were important to him, to them or weren't important to them. And of course, we're always looking to some degree through that 21st century lens, that, that lens of today as we do all of that. I think that that makes, as you said, that person actually come across as a person. It makes them uh, interesting and engaging. And in some ways, too, I think it makes that time period feel more real. Because I think that we look at 1930s or 1830s, whenever, whatever the decade is, and we can be looking at that individual and be thinking, uh, you know, they're, they, I can kind of count on my five fingers what's important about them or what I know about them. If we dig deeper, suddenly this kind of flat picture of the individual in the time becomes this beautiful, maybe not so beautiful, but at least interesting to look at three-dimensional view of the world. And I was actually just about to say that how you mentioned not so beautiful. I think that's what makes social studies so interesting, especially when you're talking about it with adolescents for people at, at a, for the students, the, the age that I teach. Um, getting them to think, wow, this isn't so beautiful. You know, like there's more to this topic than I thought, or there's more to FDR than just the New Deal. And, you know, helping with the Great Depression and helping with World War II. The, those are the big three, um, that there's so much more to him. And having them re sit and realize and even get angry or, or passionate about certain topics in history, that's how you know that they're learning the history when they're getting passionate. And I feel like a way to do that is to really just expose them to the primary sources. I love it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, 
I wanted to just wrap up. I didn't mention this at the beginning of the interview, but I know you know we met back in 2016 at the Library of Congress Summer Teacher Institute. You attended one week. I was there that that uh, week as a teacher in residence that was helped putting on that week. And I never get to follow up with people in this kind of way. We're looking back several years later. I so know. I'm just wondering, for you looking back, for you, how did that week impact your teaching and your students' learning? If you would kind of take that big, long look back and then maybe kind of look to what you're doing today, what you're writing about, what your students are doing, did that week have an impact? And if so, what was it? So first and foremost, that week um, definitely had an impact on me as a teacher. And I feel definitely impacted uh, my students indirectly because of what I learned that week. Uh, from you <laughs> and um, the different types of trainings and activities that uh, you had the the people, uh, the attendees uh, practicing and, and going through. I still use a lot of the activities that we learn there till this day. Um, there are still many things like the Boston Massacre um, painting lesson actually what is modified from the map lesson that we did at the Library of Congress. So I was just so sold with that, that, uh, that map lesson. And what I loved about that program is, this is, this is just an example of what you can do with this lesson, but you can modify it any way you want. And I really noticed that we could. It was specific enough for us to analyze what we were looking, the primary sources we were looking at as educators, but flexible enough where our brains were running and saying, oh, I can do it with this, I can do it with that. That whole week, I was just coming up with more and more and more ideas. And some of those ideas, like you said, several years later are still being put in place. And um, second of all, that week just, just really in, uh, impacted me as a person too. It was easily one of the best weeks uh, in my professional and personal life. And uh, it was just such a good experience experience. And I'm so glad that we are reconnecting and, and uh, having this conversation several years later as a check-in, as like a debrief, you know, like, have you used any of these uh, activities or resources? What, you know, what, what's going on with, with that? And I just think it was so amazing. Well, I, first of all, I've got to say it was not, I was like one of three people that was doing that. So I want to give full credit to, um, to uh, the other people that were there and really the people that I was, I was really relying heavily on them because they, they were, they were really, there was a structure in place there that, that was so beneficial. Uh, and I was able to, to step in and, and provide a little bit of my perspective on that. But I think that one thing that you really reminded me of, not just for the week that I attended when I was a participant, but also for the weeks that I was able to help give that uh, that Summer Teacher Institute is how often do you have a week to think deeply about something educationally based, work-based, professionally based, and not have all of the other demands in your life that are pulling on us professionally and personally. I think that that, that is one uh, huge benefit that actually being able to go out to DC and, and attend that way really, really brought forth for me. And I heard, feel like I heard a little bit of that from you as well, that that was, that was an important part of it. 
Oh, the setting just added to it. The setting was perfect. Uh, and it honed you in on exactly what, uh, and you were, you were at the Library of Congress doing this too. And it just gave, like you said, gave us a whole week to really just practice our craft and, and not worry about being pulled in so many different directions, which was highly appreciated. I, I still highly appreciate it. Um, really quickly, one of my former colleagues heard such a good experience from me that she applied and got in and had the same experience. So it was, it's been great. <laughs> well, I love it. And the other thing too, is that whenever I have been lucky, when I attended, when I was lucky enough to work with your group and another couple groups that summer, there are always just like superstar educators in there. And it's just this amazing brain trust. Donna, I can't thank you enough for not only being you. part of that amazing brain trust four <laughs> years ago, but for then revisiting with me later and sharing I know. the amazing things that you're doing with your kids with primary sources. It is a great model for us all to listen to. Can you tell us if we, cause I know we follow each other on social media, but for someone who wants to follow you on social media, keep up with what you're doing. Where can they find you? Of course. Um, I am on Twitter. Uh, my username is Miss underscore Catapano, um, MS underscore and my last name. And uh, yeah, all my stuff is pretty much being shared on there pretty consistently on different um, activities that I'm trying out with my kids. So if you decide to follow me, feel free to reach out. I will be happy, happy to talk with you. All right. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes and anything else that you mentioned tonight, today, Donna, that we can share in the show notes. I'll make sure I get that from you and we will include it for everyone. Okay. Awesome. Sounds great. Awesome. Donna, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. 